first time here is Pastor Greg Crawford. He's from Living Water Church in Plattsmouth, Nebraska. So he came a long ways to be with us this morning. And he's been in Nebraska about a year, and he recently was a pastor in Alaska. So he's come a really long ways, but he was there for about 10 years, and maybe he'll tell you a little bit more about that. But let's welcome Pastor Crawford. Thank you all. Well, it's an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's also a curse because I had to wake up at 4 a.m. I don't know if anybody hates waking up at 4 a.m., but that's not fun. My contacts like aren't even, they're trying to get out of my eyes because my eyes are trying to tell the contacts that they don't want to be open. They want to be closed and sleep more. Uh, but I'll eventually get over that. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I love uh, sharing the gospel and preaching from the Bible. That's something that God began calling me to do even when I was some of your age. If there's any seniors in high school here, uh, that's when God really began to speak to me that this is what he was setting me apart to do with my life. And so I spent uh, several years in northwest Arkansas. That's where I grew up and uh, that's where I was called to the ministry and I began pastoring and, and teaching there, fresh out of high school. I was a really young uh, youth pastor, but continued to do that for several years. Then God called me to Alaska in 2011, and so I spent the last 10 years as a pastor in Soldotna, Alaska, and I also was a professor at uh, the Alaska Christian College there that was a, a school for the native Alaskan uh, kids that were coming in from bush villages all around the state, and so we got to share the gospel with them. So I had the privilege of doing that, and then finally God, in recent years, called me to Nebraska. And so over in Plattsmouth, I now pastor and get the opportunity to share uh, the gospel and to preach God's word there. So I've been given the challenge this morning to bring Mark chapter 5 uh, to you, and I understand you guys are going through this chapter by chapter. And so I hope this is a chapter that uh, we can study together and glean much from. So if you will turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and we'll read this together, pray, and then jump right in. Mark chapter 5, verse 1, it begins reading, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat, or as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not not permit uh, him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to study this together. And we just pray, Lord, that you would 
um, draw out principles for us this morning that we can apply to our lives. And Lord, just help shape us and mold us into the people you want us to be. And may that be for your glory and honor. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So any time that we take a look at God's word, uh, the first thing I like to do is ask myself, why is this here? Why is this story here at this point in time? Because the people who wrote this, this guy Mark, when he was writing, he could have chosen numerous stories. In fact, the book of John tells us that Jesus did so many miracles that all the books in the world could not contain them all. And so we have to ask the question, why did Mark put this here? And you can ask that for any of the writers. When Paul was writing, you can say, why did Paul include this story? Or why did he decide to put this lesson right here at this time? And as you guys are going through chapter by chapter, it's important to think about this and say, okay, why did this story happen following that previous story that we just studied last week? And how does this story connect to what you guys are going to study next week? Those are always good questions that you should ask yourself. In fact, it's hard to really understand the meaning of God's word if you don't do that. And so here we have three stories that show up together in this chapter. And the first thing that I do when I'm studying the scripture is I begin to ask myself, what do we have in common between these three stories? We have Jesus showing up and casting out this demon. We have this man whose daughter is about to die, and in fact does die. And we have this story of this woman who has this bleeding issue that has gone on for 12 years. And so what do they all have in common? Are these just random thoughts? Mark is just spewing things that come to his mind randomly? Or has he put some thought into this and pieced these stories together? And I believe that... Indeed, he has put some thought into this and has put these stories side by side to teach us something. And you guys are probably familiar with this word, but this is called reading the Bible in context. Context is the key to interpretation. It's how you can understand something fully. You know, if, if you don't understand the context, what's being said, you may miss out on important truths. If I say, hey, move your wing. We'll say, what does that even mean? Well, it depends on the context, right? If I'm sitting at Buffalo Wild Wings, it means move your chicken. If I'm a pilot in an airplane, it means move the plane over. I'm about to crash into your wing. Or if you're a guy in a chicken suit, I'm talking about your physical wing that you're wearing. See, context changes the meaning. And so if you don't know the context, then you don't understand what's going on here. So we look at Mark and we begin to read and piece the context together, and it starts to come alive. The scriptures come alive, and we can better understand what is happening here. And we always should ask other questions, not just like what comes before and what comes after, but we need to ask the question like, who is the writer? Who is he writing to? When was it written? What was the culture when it was written? Because all those things will change the way that we see it, the way we interpret it. Because this wasn't written in our day. You know, we didn't have, uh, you know, electricity back then. And so when they're writing about something, we have to take that into account. They didn't have cars back then. So we've got to take that into account. The way that they lived life was completely different than the way that we live life. We have to sort of dig and understand some of those cultural differences 
to fully grasp what the meaning of this text is. So Mark is a guy who ends up traveling around with Paul later on in his missionary journeys, and he is living and, and getting a chance to preach the gospel and to experience the gospel after Jesus has already died. I mean, this is written 30-some-odd years after Jesus died and rose again. So that's important because now he's writing the story with this perfect 2020 hindsight vision. Now, many of you have experienced that before. You didn't know something clearly at the time, but now looking back, it all makes sense. Uh, when I was called to ministry in high school, I was trusting God and I was following him blindly. And I wanted to go and train at a, a Christian college. And so I trusted God. I didn't have the finances to do this. And so uh, my church had gathered together and they said, Greg, we want to help support you and we want to fund you uh, for this first year. We want you to go get your Christian education so that you can preach the gospel and you can be trained up. And so I was taking a leap of faith. None of my family had ever gone to college. They didn't know anything about college and they certainly didn't have the money to send me. And so I was stepping out on faith. Well, the week I was supposed to move away from my home and go to the college, the church contacts me, and I guess they had some major financial crisis, and all of a sudden, the funding was pulled. I no longer could go. And I was kind of devastated because I felt like, hey, that story where Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus, and he stepped out on faith, and I'd always been taught that I got to step out on faith. Well, I did that, God, and now all of a sudden, I'm like Peter sinking in the water. My funding is to go to college. I can't train like I believe that you called me to go, and I didn't understand it at the time. Well, now 20 years later, I can look back on that occurrence, and because God closed the door, I ended up studying locally. My employer actually ended up paying for some of my college credits, uh, my college classes, I ended up getting involved in ministry at the University of Arkansas. And at that ministry, I ended up reaching several people with the gospel. I ended up meeting my wife. I ended up doing a lot of things that changed my life for the better. And so where I thought I was sinking in the water, God was closing the door. But I wouldn't have understood that at the time, no matter what you told me. It took hindsight, looking back 20 years later and putting all the pieces together. Well, Mark has that privilege and he's writing with that aspect now this isn't new things happening he's not writing down these stories as they happen he's interpreting them after jesus has already died he's already risen from the grave he's already ascended up into heaven the gospel is already spreading to the edges of the known world and now mark writes about jesus's life and so i think we need to keep that in our minds as we interpret this story and so as you read this letter, it, it's sort of like you're a detective and you're flipping over every stone and studying every piece of it. And you're looking at how things match up and how things are different. It's sort of like a, if you ever had a, a crush on somebody and they wrote you a letter. And I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody in here, but back when I was in junior high, there were a lot of letters being passed around. And if there's a no letter policy at this school, just focus on your studies, okay? Don't write any letters. But when I was in junior high, we had letters. And every once in a while, 
a pretty girl would give a guy a letter, and he'd be like, oh, what's this say? Does she like me? Does she not like me? And he would start reading, and it would say, hey, Tommy. And he would be like, hmm. It says, hey, Tommy. Does that mean like, hey, like, hey, Tommy? Or is it like, hey, Tommy? Uh, and so he starts to study the letter. And there's a little heart over the eye when she spells the word is. And he's like, ooh, a heart over the eye. Is that because she hearts me or is that because she just puts hearts on all her eyes because she's a bubbly person? And then he's reading all the things she says about how she wants him to sit with her at lunch and hang out with her friends. He's like, is that because I'm just a friend or does she like me like, you know? So he starts studying this letter and he puts countless hours into it investigating the letter because he wants to really get to the bottom of how she feels about him. Well, we should put the same level of scrutiny into the scriptures when we're reading it. We should do the detective work. We should be piecing it together because it's so much more important than Kimberly's letter to Tommy. Okay, and so that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to do some detective work really quick, and we're going to explore these common ideas and things that we see in the book of Mark. And so these are a couple of things that... As I read through the chapter, I said, okay, I think these are common themes that run through all three of these stories that kind of give us the main idea of what is being discussed here. And since we only have 30 minutes, we can't dive really deep. There's so much I'm going to be skipping over this morning, and I encourage you to dive a little deeper on your own time. But the first thing I see here is that Jesus is a purifier of the impure. Jesus is a purifier of the impure. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, and if you're not, listen up, because Jesus was a Jewish person. He was an Israelite. And the Israelites were under a code. They were under a law that had been passed down from Moses. And the Mosaic law, the law of Moses required them to do certain things or to stay away from certain things or else they would be impure or unclean, okay? And when we think about unclean, like when we fall in the mud or, you know, we touch something with germs on it, that's not always the case in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, you could be unclean for a variety of reasons, and it's simply a status that is put upon you that means that you have to kind of separate yourself from the rest of the people. And you need to maybe wash. Sometimes you have to wash to get clean. Sometimes you just have to stay away for seven days and then come back and you'll be clean. But the law of Moses, it told you when you would be clean, when you would not be clean. And as a Jew, you wanted to be clean. And as a Jewish leader, you desperately wanted to be clean. That's why the Pharisees made a big deal out of hand washing and several other things in the New Testament because they did not want to defile themselves. If they defiled themselves, then they couldn't observe the Passover and they couldn't observe several of the feasts and festivals. And as big shots in the community, they needed to be there. They needed to be clean. And so as a Jew, you did not want to be unclean, not want to be impure. 
Well, the first thing I read in this story in Mark chapter 5 is Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the sea. And he gets out over there, and it says he's walking through tombs. Well, first off, that's a no-no. You don't walk through tombs because tombs are where dead people are. And you don't want to be where dead people are because if you're around dead people, you are impure. You are unclean. And this demon-possessed man is full of demons, many demons. He's there in the tombs, and he wants to be where it's unclean because demons like people to be unclean. They want you to be impure. They want you to stray away from God's code and God's righteousness. And so this demon-possessed man has dragged this man into, these demons have dragged this man into the tombs, and Jesus shows up over on this side of the sea, kind of away from Jerusalem and away from the hometown of Jesus and away from the, the Israelite population and into a more of a mixed population. There will be some Gentiles over there. There will be some Samaritans over there. And in this area, a lot of the Jews would probably say you were not clean just by being over there. This goes all the way back into the history of the Israelites. and We don't have time to explore this completely, uh, but there were some tribes that didn't cross over the Jordan River and they were established on the eastern side and they were the first ones to get attacked. They were the first ones to fall. They were the first ones to get kind of polluted with other gods and other people outside of Israel. And, and so the Jewish people really viewed this area as unclean and these people as unclean. But Jesus goes over there to them. He goes over and he mingles with them. And it says that there are pigs nearby and herdsmen. That means they're raising pigs in this area. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people, they do not eat pork. They do not allow any kind of pork product to touch their plate because that would make them unclean. It's called, you know, non-kosher because it's impure you would be violating the law of Moses. The law of Moses said you can't eat catfish, you can't eat pork, you can't eat shrimp, you can't eat lizards. I mean, they have a long list of things that you can't eat. And pork was one of the big ones that made them different than the rest of the people. And here Jesus is on the other side of the sea, walking among these unclean people, walking among pig farmers and pigs. But yet, here's the thing. Jesus did not become unclean in this moment you see jesus is the purifier of the impure so he goes up to this man and he ends up casting the demons out of the man a scenario that would have made anybody else on earth impure jesus actually demonstrates through his power that it doesn't flow from the impure to the person, but that because he's God, because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, he is a purifier. He actually makes the impurity go away. When Jesus is done with this place, the demons will have been cast out, the pigs will have been drowned in the sea, and there will be a man who goes around preaching that Jesus is the Messiah all throughout the Decapolis, all throughout this region. Because Jesus doesn't become impure 
when he comes in contact with these things, he actually purifies them. You get on later on in the story, and this man named Jairus comes up, and he says, hey, my daughter is suffering, and she's about to die. So Jesus is walking with him, and he gets interrupted by a woman with an issue of blood. Now, most likely, this is a woman who has a non-ending menstrual cycle, and it's been going on for 12 years, and she can't get any help. And so she goes up and touches Jesus' robe. Now, back into the law of Moses, if some woman had a discharge like this, or even if a man had some kind of discharge, if he had some kind of pus or something coming out of his skin, he would be unclean. And if you touched him, you would be unclean. And so Jesus as a rabbi and Jesus as a leader of this, this group of people that are following him, this woman knows that if she comes in contact with Jesus, she's going to disrupt his ministry. That's probably why she doesn't make a big deal out of it. She slowly sneaks in and just touches his robe. But Jesus makes a big deal out of it. She didn't, but Jesus does. He says, who touched me? Now, Jesus knows everything. He knows who touched her. But he's drawing attention to it on purpose because he wants to show his disciples and anybody listening and anybody listening here this morning that when Jesus comes in contact with someone impure, it doesn't corrupt Jesus. It actually cleanses the person who's impure. This woman with this issue, as soon as she touches Jesus, her impurity goes away. Her sickness, her disease, whatever this is that's causing this, disappears because the power of Jesus flows from him to her and the impurity disappears. Uh, what's important here is that there is touch involved because that's what would have really been a violation of the law of Moses. But there's more. Jesus goes to Jairus' house and by the time Jesus gets there, the little girl is dead. She is passed away. And Jesus goes into her and he says, don't worry, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Now that's the Christian term for those who passed away. Uh, oftentimes it, they refer to it as sleep because it's not permanent. We know that Christians will not stay dead. They will be resurrected and they will get new life. Well, Jesus knows that he's about to resurrect this girl. So he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And what does he do? He goes into her and he takes her by the hand. Uh-oh, we have another violation of the Mosaic Law. You don't touch the dead or else you have become impure. You have become unclean in that moment. But once again, Jesus proves that uncleanness and impurity doesn't flow from the unclean to him, but rather his purity flows from himself to the unclean. And so the little girl rises up and they treat her like normal. He says, get her something to eat. She's hungry. And so that's the first point. I think we see this through all three stories. And as we do our detective work, we're looking and comparing. We say, whoa, looky here. Jesus is the purifier of the impure. He brings purity to the violation of the Mosaic law over and over again throughout this chapter. But there's something else I see, a common theme that flows from one story to the next, and that's the inability of people to purify. 
You go back to the first story in Mark chapter 5, and it actually gives a pretty lengthy section here about this. It says that this man who is demon-possessed, it said no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. You know, they tried to like tie him up so he would stop hurting himself. This guy was cutting himself and hitting himself with rocks, and the demons inside of him wanted him to self-mutilate. This guy probably at this point looks like Smeagol off Lord of the Rings. I mean, he is really in a bad shape. But no one could help him. It says he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke them into pieces. And it says no one, no one had the strength to subdue him. You see, people were unable to help. But then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and saves the day. But not only does that story have that as a theme, but you move to the next story, the woman with the issue of blood. The woman with the issue of blood had gone to doctors. It says she had gone to many physicians. She had spent her life savings with these physicians. And it says she didn't get better. She actually got worse. You see, human effort failed. They were unable to make this impurity go away. They were incapable of helping her in her predicament. But then Jesus shows up and saves the day. You go on to Jairus' daughter. And of course, by the time they get to her, uh, they've done everything they could. They've tried to help her. No one can help her. And now at this point, she's even died. At 12 years old, she's dead. In fact, I don't think it's a an accident either that this woman with the issue of blood has been bleeding for 12 years and this daughter of Jairus is 12 years old. This woman's been suffering as long as this girl's been alive and now as soon as this woman gets healed, this girl dies. And Jesus shows up and though no one else can bring her back, in fact, they've already started the mourning process in Israel and in the ancient Near East, they would hire people to mourn. I know that sounds weird, but you could, like, your job could be show up and play the proper songs on the flute and make people cry. If you can make people cry at the funeral, you did your job. I don't know, I don't know, like, we have comedians today that like to make people laugh. I don't know anybody whose job is to make people cry, but you could have got that job back then. So by the time Jesus gets here, they're weeping, they're wailing, and that's one of the ways you made people cry. I guess people are sympathetic criers, and if I start crying right now, maybe someone out there will get teary-eyed. Oh, don't do that to me. Well, that's what they did at the funeral. They'd show up, and someone would start wailing. And I, I don't know if there's any wailers in here that could tell us exactly how that sounds, but it involves a lot of screaming and screeching and, and boo-hooing. Well, they would do that to make tears form into other people so that there would be a proper response to the passing away of this girl. Well, they can't help the girl. All they can do is help people cry about the girl. But Jesus shows up, and he saves the day again. So I think that's another theme we see. Not only is Jesus the purifier of the impure, but we see the inability of people to purify. Another thing I think we see here is Jesus' power over threats. Jesus' power over threats. He shows up in the first scenario with the demons, 
And there's a spiritual threat. There are demons that are so powerful they can break chains. And yet, Jesus overcomes spiritual barriers. That means whatever barrier you're facing in your life, Jesus can overcome it. Whatever spiritual hardship you're facing, whatever barrier there is to eternal life, Jesus can overcome it. In the next story, we see physical and social barriers. This woman's sick. Doctors can't help her. She's an outcast from society because she's unclean. Jesus helps her. He can overcome the physical and social barrier. And then the third story, it's the barrier of death. The Bible teaches us not even death can separate us from the love of Christ in Romans chapter 8. And so those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we don't need to worry about death because that's not a barrier that keeps us from God. No spiritual barrier, no physical barrier, no social barrier, not even the barrier of death can separate us from the love of God if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want to bring out this morning before we close is that each of these stories, you have a response by the people. And this morning, you have an opportunity to respond. Every time you open the Bible and you hear it proclaimed, you have an opportunity to respond. In the very first story, Jesus goes and he casts out the demons and it goes into the pigs and they run down the hill and they're drowned. And the people come and they see the man who had been bound by chains and had broke them and he was just always insane acting. They see him sitting there in his right mind. And what is their response? The response should have been that they'd fall down and worship Jesus, but instead they're afraid of him and they ask him to leave. They get to the story of the woman, the woman who is healed from her sickness, and it says that she became afraid as well. So the people in the first story are afraid of Jesus. The woman becomes afraid of Jesus. And you get into the third story, and the people mock Jesus, and they make fun of him when he says that the girl is sleeping. And then Jesus even has to tell Jairus, not to be afraid. You see, all three have scenario where people are fearful. And the Bible tells us to fear God. In fact, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's going to be the right kind of fear. In the first scenario, they're afraid because Jesus is destroying their pig farm. And it's going to take away their money. In the second scenario, I think the woman thinks she's going to get in trouble. Because she snuck power. Instead of just coming up to Jesus and asking for it. In the third scenario, Jairus is afraid that he's lost his daughter for good. And he doesn't have that full confidence that Jesus can bring her back from the dead. But in all these scenarios, Jesus does not approve of the fear. He says, fear not. Do not be afraid. There's a certain kind of healthy fear that we can have before God. But if you're afraid that God's going to take away your possessions or you're afraid that God's going to ask you to do something that you're uncomfortable with, or if you're afraid that following Jesus will cost you friends and you'll be mocked like Jesus is mocked here, that's the wrong kind of fear. The Bible says to fear God and fear only God and be anxious for nothing, but to to lean and trust in Christ because he'll take care of all those needs. Put the kingdom first. And that's exactly the opportunity that each of these people had 
And we do see some faithfulness here. The man who was healed of his possession, he ends up going and proclaiming Jesus to the Decapolis. And so the question is, if you're going to have time to discuss these things later on, the question is, how are you responding to the call of Christ in your life? How are you responding to the, the Savior who has promised that he can make you pure, he can make you clean, and how have you responded to that in the past? And how can you respond differently today? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Mark and to just glean from it some of the truth that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, discuss these things throughout the day and as we think about them, Lord, that you would help us to be not fearful of the world and fearful of the consequences of following you, but Lord, that we would fear you because of who you are. Lord, that we would be in awe and in wonder and in just pure reverence of who you are. Lord, we know that you have the power not only to heal, but to bring us back from the dead. And so, Lord, we put our trust and faith in you this morning, and I pray, Father, that our faith would be strengthened by having your word opened to us this morning. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.